We're in 1 Kings chapter 16. Last week, we were introduced to Ahab and Jezebel, the wicked king of Israel and his wife. Such a contrast between King Asa and Ahab. And Asa was still on the throne in Judah. We learned that he was in the latter part of his reign. And we read how lightly Ahab esteemed his own sin. And so he added more to it because he esteemed it so lightly. And we learn from that that evil begets more evil. Evil tries to outdo evil. And now we continue studying this terrible reign of wickedness that we might learn from it. For those of you tuning in just now, we're in 1 Kings chapter 16. Can you imagine if this cut out on the Whataburger people? Your order would be all kinds of messed up, wouldn't it? So we'll, we'll hope to get that resolved. Now let's look at verse 33. 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 33. And Ahab made a grove. And Ahab did more to provoke, to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Again, we see it again, don't we? This one did worse than the last one, who had done worse than the one before, and so forth. Evil begets evil. And Ahab went all the way for Baal. He sold out to Baal. He married the daughter of Ethbaal. He built a house for Baal. He built an altar for Baal. And now, in our text... He's made a grove for Baal. What a building committee Baal had. In fact, he still has one. Did you know that? It grows larger every day. And with the permission of religious unbelievers, and sometimes the permission of weak Christians, Satan has substituted his churches and his altars and his groves for the teaching of God's word, for Bible study and prayer and God-centered worship rather than man-centered worship. And as long as the world, the world system, can call a building a church and do whatever they want inside it, most religious people will still accept it as a good thing. Because it's called a church. If you want to put a good guy sticker on any activities, just call it a church event. We're having a church this or a church that. And people will say, oh, that's wonderful. We should all go. And yet, much of it is part of Bale's building program. The church was never originally a building of steel or of wood or of stone, but it was a building of the redeemed of the Lord. One not made with hands, but made through the blood of atonement at the cross where Jesus died. The blood atonement of its founder is the foundation of the church. But Satan has many such churches today, doesn't he? Now those churches may not be called churches of Satan, 
like the one Anton LaVey had out in California and all across the nation, I suppose, and around the world. No, some of those churches have the name Baptist on them. Some of them have the name Catholic or Christian or other similar titles. And those titles lead the people who attend them and who join them to believe that they're in the right place because they don't know their Bible. If you're trying to find a good church, you need to know your Bible. If you don't know your Bible, then you will, you might find a good church, but it won't be because you knew your Bible. It will be because God's providence led you there in spite of your own ignorance. Thank God for that too, by the way. <laughs> Isn't that right? That's how many of us came into a good church. We didn't know our Bibles, but God's sovereign hand said, why don't you go in here? Those churches promise to have warm, inviting services and friendly people. They promise to be filled with activities and things for the children, they call them. There are dances and games and volleyball tournaments for Jesus. The world, and even some in the Lord's church, will give their nod of approval, say, oh, that looks good. But God's heart is grieved. It's stirred to jealousy because we've been espoused to Jesus as a chaste bride. And I pray God would give us the grace, because that's what we're counting on, that he would give us the grace to stick with his word and to not be involved in a building program for Baal. The text says Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Are we disheartened? Yes. That's a sad thing. Are we surprised? No. Verse 34. In his days did Hiel the Bethelite build Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram, his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. Let me tell you what happens when you read your Bible and you, let's say you read a chapter. When you get to the end of that chapter, and this is the old flesh, you know what you're thinking? I'm almost done. That often happens. And we often don't pay attention to the last verse of a chapter, not nearly as much as we may the beginning or the middle of the chapter. Sometimes we say, okay, well, this is the last verse. The song's almost over. And yet in there is something that we may have never noticed before. There is a prophecy that was fulfilled right here in verse 34, one that God said would happen. And we're going to look at that. It's the fulfillment of a prophetic curse made by Joshua hundreds of years before. It happened after the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Now, we know to sing that song, don't we? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down, and they did. In, chapter, in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 26, 
If you're writing that down, Joshua 6, 26. So this is after Jericho was destroyed. And here's what Joshua said. And Joshua adjured them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city, Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. Isn't that something? Hundreds of years before, Joshua said, and I'll paraphrase, this city's been torn down. And God did that. They didn't hammer the walls and knock them down. They marched around it seven times on the seventh day with the sound of the priests, the trumpets, and the walls came down. And Joshua said, if there's anybody who tries to build this city back up, his firstborn and his youngest are going to die. His firstborn will die when the foundations are laid, and his youngest will die when the gates are set up. That final chapter of building a wall of a city, shutting the gates, keeping the enemy out, keeping safe those who are inside. Now you may look at this text and say, what, what does that mean, set up the gates thereof in his youngest son and uh, laid the foundation thereof in Abiram, his firstborn? That doesn't mean he poured concrete into Abiram and set him up as a foundation. That's a, a would be a silly notion. The English Standard Standard Version translates that part of the verse this way. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. And at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. In other words, there is a cost to rebuilding this city that God destroyed. God destroyed himself, this city. This means the firstborn will die because of it and the youngest will die as well. I want you to notice a few things about this prophecy. Number one, Hiel, the man who's spoken about in verse 34, was a Bethelite. And according to Joshua chapter 18, verses 21 through 22, Bethel was a city given to the tribe of Benjamin. That's in Joshua 18, 21 through 22. And Hiel, the Bethelite, would have known about this warning. He was from Bethel. Secondly, if Hiel knew this prophecy, and he knew the building of Jericho's foundation, the rebuilding of it, would cost him the life of his firstborn son, and then he saw his firstborn son die when the foundation was laid. Why would he risk the life of his youngest son by continuing that ill-advised building project? Why would he do that? Thirdly, Hiel should have believed God's prophecy about losing his firstborn son. His Faith should not have been tested by the loss of his firstborn son so that he would believe his secondborn son would also die if he didn't stop this madness. He should have said, the Lord made this prophecy. I dare not lay my hand to Jericho and pick up its ruins and resurrect it for any reason because God said, this would cost me my firstborn and my youngest. And I love these boys. 
I want them to honor the Lord. I sure don't want to do anything to cause them to die under the judgment of God. Well, he didn't do that. And this is a lesson in what a hard heart looks like. You ask yourself, what does it mean when somebody's heart is hardened? It's what Pharaoh did when he continued to hold the children of Israel in captivity in spite of the fact that he had just endured the first plague of the blood turning, the water turning to blood. He knew God was good for his word. And yet his heart was hardened again. The Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we've talked about that before in order to avoid the misconception that God made Pharaoh sin. When God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he just left it like it was. Pharaoh had a sinful heart, and God just left it alone. He let him do what he was going to do. And so the heart was hardened. But he was an unbeliever, just like Hiel. So when Hiel rebuilt Jericho, here in verse 34... It was a sin. There would be people in those days and today who would say that was a heroic act to rebuild a city that was once destroyed. Some would say it was an act of great charity to build those walls again and give the people in that region a city to call their own. But in Joshua's day, God destroyed it. Rahab and her family were saved from it, but the destruction of that city was a sign of the judgment of God, just as Sodom and Gomorrah, which have not been resurrected, at least the city hasn't. And Jericho was not to be resurrected either. Let's look at chapter 17 and verse 1. And Elijah the Tishbite who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Perhaps in your journey through the Bible and in your Christian walk, you've said, I want to do a study on Elijah. Well, here we are. But rather than diving into the middle of a story, not considering what led up to it, you've been prepared for this by weeks and months of learning about Israel and Judah and the evil that was present in those days. And you're going to have a greater appreciation for Elijah's appearance on the scene and the works that he did as God enabled him than perhaps you did before. Considering the end of the last chapter, why is it that this verse is even necessary? Why would Elijah have to give such an ominous message to Ahab? Because Ahab, just like Hiel in verse 34, did not repent and believe God's word. Ahab could have said when he saw what God did to Hiel's sons, Ahab could have said, 
Oh, Lord, now I see what you're doing. We have sinned. I have sinned. And I want to put my trust in you. Please turn from your wrath for your mercy's sake. But he did not. And God knew he would not. So we go from the death of Hiel's two sons, the building of a sinful city, Jericho, to this warning from Elijah. It says he was a Tishbite. And that word just means captivity. From examining biblical texts only, we don't know where Tishba was. The only reference you see to a Tishbite is here with Elijah. And he's called Elijah the Tishbite several times in the Bible. There are some extra biblical writings that have this uh, place near the Jabbok River, which runs from the east side of the Jordan River into the Jordan. It's a tributary, just like we have. You know, Cedar Creek ends up running into the Trinity River. So that's what a tributary is, if you didn't know. But he was of the inhabitants of Gilead, the text tells us, and that gives us a little better idea of what his earthly association was with a certain group or tribe, where he may have come from. Gilead was a mountain, as Genesis 31 tells us, and also a city, and also a person. So Elisha would have proceeded from one of those places, or if he proceeded from a person, from the half-tribe of Manasseh, because one of Manasseh's grandsons was named Gilead. And it says in the middle of the text, now here's Elijah talking to Ahab, and have you noticed about God's prophets that when they come to bring a message to a king, there's not any small talk. <laughs> they walk in, there's not an introductory paragraph or like you're taught in management, sandwich the bad between the good. You know, say, Tony, I appreciate all the good work you've done. However, I would like you to work on this. And at the end, Tony, thank you for being faithful to the company. No, God's prophets don't do that. They point that godly finger at that king and say, and they just shell the corn. And that's what Elijah did. He said, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. He got right to the point. As the Lord God of Israel liveth. This is what you would know as an invocation of authority. And it's the same thing that we do in law enforcement. In the name and by the authority of the state of Texas, we carry out thus and thus. I don't carry it out in my name because without the deputization of my sheriff, I'm just another civilian who has the same authority you do. But there's a special authority granted to do certain things under the Constitution of the United States and the state of Texas and the laws that are passed or that were passed. And I have to do that in that authority. And if I step outside of that authority, then what I say is no good. So Elijah comes, not in his own name. He comes in the name of the Lord. 
and he gives this invocation of authority to make a prophecy. But not only does he have the authority to make the prophecy, but he has the assurance that the prophecy will come true when he said, as the Lord liveth. As the Lord liveth. So as long as God doesn't die, then the authority and the assurance of this prophecy are there. So what does that mean? The authority and the assurance will always be there. There's never a time that it dies. God's prophecies are always in force. The authority of a king, such as Ahab, dies with the king. And although the dead king's authority may be taken up by the next king or another ruler, somebody's going to take it up, anything the dead king commanded is not necessarily going to be done. If the new king, the living king, says, raise taxes, but the dead king says, don't raise taxes, who wins? The new king, because he's alive, he's living. And the Lord God of Israel liveth forever, so the authority of his commands lives forever. No authority has any authority to usurp God's authority, because God liveth forever. So Elijah was coming in the most powerful name with the authority of the Lord that liveth. And look in the text, he says, as the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand. Now let's look at that phrase, before whom I stand. Although Elijah was physically standing before King Ahab, he said, as the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand. Just as Moses physically stood in the presence of the Pharaoh, warning him of the judgment of God, Moses was actually standing in the presence of the Lord, the Lord God of Israel who liveth. And when we stand in the presence of the rulers of wickedness and high places and all of that, this world system, the representatives of Satan, let's remember that we're actually standing in the presence of the Lord God of Israel who liveth. And this is a powerful position because we're not charged with defeating wicked rulers, are we? I mean, if we have an army that takes on another army, we want to be victorious. But in the big picture, the one who will be victorious and who is victorious over evil is God. This country may prevail over this country and rule it for a hundred years. And then this country comes in and prevails and rules for a hundred years or even a thousand years. And it's, it's constant. But nobody ever retains authority for all time. There's not a civilization in this world that had its authority from the beginning and still has it today unbroken. Not one. And there never will be one. The kingdom of God is the only kingdom that prevails forever because it's God lives forever. We're charged not with defeating these wicked rulers, 
but with warning them of God's wrath to come. God didn't tell Moses to go in there and get Pharaoh in a chokehold. He told him to go in there and say, let my people go three days out in the wilderness and worship me. That was the original request. And Pharaoh said, not going to do it. And then he said he would, and then he said he wouldn't, and he said he would, and he said he wouldn't. We don't go in our own strength, do we? Elijah didn't go in his own strength, but in the strength of the Lord. He wasn't pitting his power against Ahab. He was pitting God's power against Ahab. And that's a different battle. That's one Ahab can't win. And as long as we go before the devil's crowd and we have the Bible, we're going to win. But we're going to do it in the power of the Lord. It may cost us our lives. But don't ever look at a Christian who loses his life in service of the Lord and say, well, I guess he lost that battle. He didn't either. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We're going, we're going to all die. How we die is different from person to person. When we die is different from person to person. But we're all going to die. The wages of sin is death. But those who are in Christ already have the victory over death because Christ was already victorious over death. So when we go before the devil's crowd, we have the word of the Lord, the Bible, and even if they take our lives, we're the victors because of what Jesus did at the cross where he won the victory. And the word we use to warn the unruly is the word Jesus will enforce on them when he comes again. And as long as you have God's word, you're victorious over the Ahabs and the Pharaohs of this world. Now, put that in your pipe and smoke it because that's going to carry you through when you don't have any strength. When you think, oh, what am I going to say? You know, Moses said that to God. He said, I'm not an orator. I'm not a good speaker. I get tongue-tied, just paraphrasing what he said. God said, who formed you? Who made your mouth? And after more protesting, he said, I'll tell you what, I'll get your younger brother to do the talking. And that would be a source of irritation to Moses at some point, no doubt. He said in the text, back in our text, 1 Kings 17, verse 1, if you're just joining us, There shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Now, because Elijah is going in the name of the Lord, when it says my word, it will be God's word through Elijah. It's not when Elijah picks a time, he doesn't shuffle the cars and go, all right, we'll make this a two-year drought. That's in God's hands. But that's a real drought. No dew nor rain until the Lord says so through Elijah. My wife and I love looking at the weather forecast. I know you wish you could hang around people as exciting as us, don't you? (laughs) And do as we do. But in the forecast, the meteorologists will often put seven or eight days of sunshine in a row with no rain in sight. Or they'll play even more cruel jokes upon us. They'll put the chance of rain in there and then pluck it out in another hour or two when we get our hopes up. But they'll put out seven or eight days in a row, sunshine and heat, and very little, if any, chance of rain. And then one afternoon, in the midst of those days, you notice the wind shift and the temperature drops a little bit. And then the bottom drops out of the sky. 
and we get a solid inch or two of rain. And it's a pleasant surprise, and it reminds us that God is the only one who can not only forecast the weather with 100% accuracy, but he controls it as well. And I have much respect for meteorologists and their profession, although it's sometimes easy to joke about. But I want you to consider this. If a meteorologist is right about three-fourths of the time, why is it we get upset with them, but we cheer a baseball player who fails one out of three times at the plate, put him in the Hall of Fame because he bats 333? Doesn't make any sense, does it? But I appreciate meteorologists and the job they do. Their knowledge, their technology has allowed me to drive around hailstorms that would have destroyed my truck, has allowed me to keep my property from being damaged, and no doubt have saved many lives through advanced warning systems, but they can't top God. Now, what does that have to do with the words, there shall not be dew nor rain these years? When God's drought comes upon Israel... There will be no surprise thunderstorms. There won't be any days where the weatherman missed it and we got some rain when he said we wouldn't. There will be no rain. Not only will there be no rain, there will be no dew. What keeps the grass from completely burning up during the, during the drought? It's the dew of the morning, if there is any. Fine mist that sets on the grass and gives it a little bit to drink. And then it's burned off as the sun rises. Israel won't even have the fine dew of the morning. Nothing. No dew, no rain, no surprise thunderstorms, probably no humidity at all. Dew in the Bible represents the precious things of heaven, those that come from God's goodness toward mankind. In Genesis chapter 27, verse 28, in that chapter, a story is told about how Jacob deceived his father, Isaac, into thinking he was Esau. And he did it with his mom, and they put the rough skin on the back of his hands and tried to make him smell like Esau and looked like Esau, Isaac couldn't see. But once he had deceived his father into thinking he was actually his brother, Isaac blessed him, and here's what he said. Therefore God give thee of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of corn and wine. In Numbers chapter 11 and verse 9, Numbers 11 verse 9, the story of God dropping manna was to the earth was recounted. It was told again. And the verse plainly says, And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell upon it. That was God's gift, God's goodness being shown to his people. So we learn that dew was not only drink for the earth and for the early morning grass, but it represented the goodness of God. And in withholding both rain and dew from Israel, 
God would remind this evil, idol-worshiping king and the people who followed him, the stiff-necked children of Israel, that it was God and not Baal who was the giver of rain, the giver of dew, and therefore all things that are good. When people say, I thank my lucky stars, or they say even thank goodness, you know they're really missing the truth. Perhaps you've said that before just as something that comes out of the mouth unfiltered. What has a star ever done for you? Oh, it gives light. Why does it give light? Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the God said, let there be light. And there was light. And he saw the light that it was good, didn't he? And when you say, thank goodness. Well, what did Jesus say about who is good? He said, there's none good but one, and that is God. Goodness is not just some phenomenon that happens to permeate our lives and bring us fortune. Neither is luck. In fact, the Webster's Dictionary, and I cite this because you don't find the word luck in the Bible. Webster's Dictionary defines luck as a force that brings good fortune or adversity. Good luck, bad luck, as people say. People go to great lengths to avoid thanking God for the due in their lives. Perhaps you might ask, well, why, why is it that some fishermen catch fish and others don't? Well, I have a lot for you there, but it's not luck. It's a combination of the fish's behavior and the fisherman's behavior. The selection of the right bait, timing and presentation and temperature and barometric pressure and current, and salinity, and all of that. God created every one of those things. You might ask how a, a person can roll two dice and come up with a double six three times in a row during Yahtzee. I bring that out because my granddaughter did that to me one day. And, uh, but it's not luck. It's called probability. It's mathematical. The weight of the dice and the surface on which they're rolled and the force and the angle with which they're rolled and other laws of physics apply. And God made all of those laws of physics, all of those laws of mathematical probability, He made those, though He's certain of the outcome in advance. And I don't know that God has any interest in whether you win a game of Yahtzee or not. I'm certain He probably doesn't. But let me tell you this, your lucky stars had nothing to do with it. Ahab and Israel will get the point, but not yet. And let's see what happens when they lean on Baal rather than God for all their needs. Verse 2, And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. God told Elijah to get out of there and go hide. Now, was God telling Elijah to be afraid? Not at all. The brook Cherith was a tributary of the Jordan River. And from the last chapter, we read that Ahab was in Samaria for 22 years when he reigned 
over Israel. And from this chapter, we know that Elijah was told to turn and go eastward and hide by the brook that was before Jordan, before you get to the Jordan. So it appears that Elijah was still west of the Jordan River, on the banks of the brook Cherith, even though there's some scholars who say it was on the east side, and I don't think it much matters which side he was on, or God would have plainly declared that to us. What matters is God told Elijah to go there and to hide or conceal himself. In verse 4, God continues telling Elijah, And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. Drink of the brook. Now my imagination runs wild here. And I have to tame it, have to address it. Why, why am I having these thoughts? You might be asking, why would God have Elijah hide by a brook when there's about to be a drought? Wouldn't you want to put him by a river or a lake or something bigger, a natural spring maybe? Well, first of all, when God brings a drought, all the water's going to be gone. There won't be any. There won't be rain or dew is what the text said, so let's don't get carried away and say that there won't be any water anywhere. But he said there will be neither rain nor dew from heaven, and we call that a drought. But it's going to be during this drought that God provides for Elijah. It'd be easy enough if there was plenty of water and therefore plenty of food for God to tell Elijah, I'm going to do all these things, but you go over here and you're going to feast and you're going to drink to your heart's content, plenty of water and plenty of food. It'd be easy for Elijah to forget what God was doing, wouldn't it? To forget how he was judging Israel, punishing them for their sin. And when he said, I've commanded the ravens to feed thee there, this may prompt another question. If there's going to be a drought, how are the ravens going to bring him food when the crops are dying, the cattle are dying, and the fish are dying because the water in the creeks is gone? Well, remember, God's not teaching just Ahab and Israel this lesson. He's also teaching Elijah. He's teaching Elijah a lesson, and it's a lesson that many Christians have learned during the most difficult, lean, trying times of their lives. And it is the lesson that God will provide. That's not just some saying you put on your Facebook page. That's a truth that you have to live by if you're a Christian. He will make a way, and he alone is faithful. Elijah needed to learn that just as well. And because you... Remember, if you've studied Elijah before, because you remember the mighty acts of Elijah and the great miracles God wrought by his hands, it might be easy to forget that he was once a spiritual baby, just like you and I have been, and perhaps maybe you still are. Sometimes we don't understand why God hides his people where he hides them. Why would he cause a great fish to swallow Jonah what was his purpose of delivering the children of Israel into Egyptian bondage where they were concealed from the world for over 400 years 
Why would he have his only begotten son as an infant hidden in Egypt? Why would he leave the apostle Paul in prison and Joseph from the Old Testament as well? Because in every one of those situations, God showed himself to be the God of salvation. And how can he be the God of salvation if he doesn't have something to save someone from? And everybody needs to be saved. He delivered those Ninevites through the gospel that Jonah preached after Jonah had been hidden in the belly of that whale and then vomited up on the shore. He delivered the children of Israel from the bondage of Egypt and to a land flowing with milk and honey, but he first had to have them in bondage in Egypt. He delivered many Gentiles and Jews from the bondage of unbelief in their day, even though the apostle Paul had been in prison. And he brought his son out of Egypt that he might teach the people the way of salvation. And he wrought the salvation of many through the prison letters of Paul as the gospel is preached to the Gentiles and Jews and you and I being some of those beneficiaries. And God will again bring to pass his great deliverance as many turn from their wicked ways in Israel and unto the living God. And that's his intent. That's his desire in salvation is that you turn from your wicked way to him. Verse 5 and 6, So he went and did according unto the word of the Lord. For he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. There's your diet right there. Just eat twice a day. Bread and flesh. Be sure you have a raven drop it down because their feet are little. How much can they bring you after all? Should be a great calorie deficit for you. I don't recommend it. But very simply put, as Elijah obeyed, God provided and God protected. He didn't just drop food and run water through there and say, Hey, Elijah, watch out for those lions and bears and scorpions and spiders and all those things. God protected Elijah there. Nobody would be able to find Elijah to kill him, though his life was sought after by the wicked king and his wife. Get this, when God hides you, God protects you. And our hiding place is in the solid rock Jesus Christ, isn't it? And from that place, none can hurt us, none can move us. Verse 7. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Now just as God's promise to protect Elijah came to pass, so did his judgment upon Israel. And it was important that Elijah hide by a brook, not somewhere else, so he could see the faithfulness of God in drying up the waters. Next week we'll see that God didn't just leave Elijah there to suffer to die of thirst or hunger, but he moved him to another place. And though the place he moved him was different, the God in whom he rested was the same. And we'll take that up next week, Lord willing. Let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for those who came to feast upon your word and for those who watched on the Internet, for those who will watch the recorded version later on. 
And Father, we know that as your Spirit teaches us your Word, we can't be in a better place or in a better state of mind, for we're learning truth that sustains and that encourages us, that admonishes us. And we ask today that if this Word find a lodging place in our hearts, that we act upon it, that it build up our foundation, and we go forth better equipped to spread the gospel in this world and to resist the devil that he may flee from us.